You're listening to audio from Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you'd like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org. So as we talk, I'm going to be kind of opening up in a, in a, an introduction before we read this passage. We're actually, I told you to go to Luke 24, but I faked you out. We're actually probably going to Ephesians 1 here in a moment. But uh, I, I kind of want us to walk into a little bit of an introduction to this concept that we have today on this Sunday afternoon message. As we think about the road to Emmaus, as I've been thinking about in general, the road to Emmaus is this amazing story of these two people walking alongside Jesus and then Jesus coming alongside them and teaching them from the scriptures. And then as the passage says, it open, he opens their eyes and their hearts burn within them. And I want us to think about our own journey along this road, your road to Emmaus, uh, your walk. As we think generally about faith and about belief, about religion, about Jesus, about where you find yourself today. You're like, well, I'm here in Jaffrey, I'm sitting right here listening to you, and so this is where I'm at, but where are you? Where's your heart? Where are you along this road, this journey of life or this journey of faith? that we all go, and some of, some of you maybe have experienced this, uh, maybe Damascus Road experience, where it was like really big, and ex- this explosion of faith, where all of a sudden, you just were like going one direction, and bang, you were going the other way. It was just this massive, life-altering situation, and some of you uh, have experienced a different way, where you, you've kind of, it's been a slow burn, if you would, a, a slow growth, a maturity, a time, yes, maybe ups and downs, but you've kind of just slowly progressed in this sanctification process, and so you don't always look back and see this one massive event, but, but, but you still have the same concept of faith where today you find yourself either growing in that or, or learning from it and trying to figure out what it is that you believe and then what it is that you're walking in today, who Jesus is and these questions that we all experience. And that's what I love about preaching in some sense is that you all come from different backgrounds but you're all human beings and you, we all have shared experiences as human beings as living, breathing bodies. We have shared experiences. We talked about last week in, in the resurrection. We have the shared experience of experiencing death that so many of us have been either seen or been around that and we recognize there's something wrong with that and yet that's why Jesus has come to, to give life from that death. And so we have this shared experience that the word of God opens up within us. And, and I think for us today, there's this shared experience that we all have, especially of those of you who have come to faith, of this, this walking along a road, this journey of life, and then attempting to describe what that's like to somebody else. Your faith is this, how do you describe it? And one way, the word of God consistently and throughout history, uh, one way the human person has used to describe what that is, is, is through this concept of vision, seeing, or blindness, not seeing. You often have in the word of God those concepts, seeing and not seeing, or blindness or vision, or this concept maybe of, of, um, of being awake or being asleep. Waking up and seeing, and we, we sing songs like, I once was blind, but now I see. And that, that could be an encapsulation of what it is like to, to understand and see maybe for the first time those faith eyes that you finally see something maybe that you've seen all along and now you see it in a different light. 
right? We, we talk about these things in, in various ways. Even if you look throughout history, you can see even um, outside of religion or outside of Jesus, the human person has been trying to define who they are through this concept of their eyes and vision and seeing and understanding or not. Blindness, I'll give you examples. If you look through history, you can look through like in the Renaissance. You look back and the Renaissance ultimately means this concept of rebirth, where you got kind of humanity and its cultural understanding at that time, birthing itself in a new way through the technological advancements of those age, of that age. In their present understanding of the world and the way things were, there was a rebirth, not settling for the past the way it was, but trying to invent and improve and to make things better and to learn. And and from that, we, we get this time of like the Protestant Reformation, a reforming of things. And yet that movement and all of that led to this age of, maybe you historical scholars know, the age of enlightenment, the enlightenment. And it sounds, it means really just what it is, this enlightenment, your light bulb goes on. It was defined by an age of rationalism and thinking, an intellectual thought, an independence from outside structures that became to dominate society, where they can personally and individually think their ways to improvement. Science began to dominate this age of reason as it was known. Mankind supposedly began to think for themselves and some of the great movements and great scientific advancements and came from this, but we also had some very dangerous things that came from this with the uh, Robespierre and the French Revolution and the great terror and the slaughterings of these things that took place where people started to take on uh, the things of their own and throw off religion and throw off any kind of outside influence. Uh, mankind having his mind enlightened, being able to see began to often see himself as the center of creation. Began to see God as something that held us back and religion and structures that were getting in the way. And you could advance hundreds of years later and you have movements of, of, that we even see and experience throughout the world today of this kind of fascism, Marxism, communism, these different ways to kind of make sense of the world. Of the world we live in and how do we, how do we find our place in it and different people and different writers have come and said this is how we make sense of it. This is how we organize and structure the world, whether it Marxism, communism, whatever. Or if the, the poor or the proletariat would just wake up, they would often use in their writings. Just wake up and recognize the oppression over you. You can overthrow that and become free. Right? It almost sounds like religious languages. The, the words they would use were very religious. Uh, this way of, of waking up to see that you, the poor, the, the labor force needs to overthrow the oppression of the, of the higher classes, right? And these are ways that they would speak and, and get people to simply wake up, open your eyes, see for who you are to be. And today we hear this kind of talk a lot. For in today's culture you have this throwing off of modernism, which was this way of thinking that that we can modernize and improve the world and make it a better place. And then we quickly realized it doesn't really get better all the time. And we're actually still got a lot of problems and issues. And so there's this prevailing notion and thought in today's world of postmodernism. Postmodernism, throwing off of the modernism, where today people operate in a similar enlightened way where they they live in this modern person needs to wake up and throw off traditionalism, throw off oppression from the past, and to throw off any absolutes. There's no absolute truth. The truth is what you want it to be and what you feel it is today. That is who we are. 
There's no objective way to know anything anymore. That's all a waste from the past. We need to re-rip everything off and start afresh. No absolute truth. We define it for what we set, what, what it is for our feelings. And so to know this, to, to understand this, we must wake up. Our eyes must be opened. And you'll hear today the phrase like woke, being woke to this or that. And, and I'm not getting in a political thing here. I'm just saying this is how humanity has used terms like this to describe the human experience the human experience of coming to an enlightened sense, the human experience of coming to understanding, to see the things, to see life the way it really is. Whether it is the truth or whether we're coming to see something that potentially is a lie or a shape or a form of the whole truth, just a partial thing. This blindness that we're coming out of it and we're waking up to reality. If you think of um, pop culture, you can think of like uh, Disney Plus and there's a, uh, and some of you are just waking up. Welcome back to the sermon. No, I'm joking. Uh, Disney Plus. Uh, there's a show called WandaVision, I think. It was kind of confusing. I didn't fully, I don't even know if I made it through the whole thing, but um, the, the show has this premise of, and spoil alert, but uh, Wanda basically is this ability to mind control thousands of people all at the same time. She's ultra powerful, and she can control the minds of, of this entire town and create this facade of normal life the way ever she wants to make it to be. And uh, the person she loves, Vision, uh, he believes he's living in this world and he doesn't know that Wanda is controlling every person around him in this massive mind complex that she's created, this perfect insulated world of her own making and own doing and her own thinking. And Vision is within it and eventually he has to wake up and see and recognize that she's been controlling everything around him. And he has to open his eyes and see the reality that what he is seeing is not reality. And you're like, whoa. (laughs) Well, I think this concept is within the, the journey of faith we all experience. We're all wanting truth. We're all wanting to see clearly. And everyone in one way, shape, or form views themselves seeing the world through a lens, a worldview, if you would, And yet, what is that? Who turns on the light? What is the light? What is the darkness? Are we blinded to it, or are we seeing? The question always remains here. And what we're gonna see as we read this passage in Luke is that that this is exactly what happens for these two men walking along the road. Along this journey, they begin to have their eyes enlightened, their eyes opened to behold Jesus for who he really is. And I think every single person in this room finds them finds themselves somewhere along this road. And so before I get that, I want us to look at a passage in Ephesians chapter one. You can turn there if you'd like. Ephesians chapter one. There's an, an amazing phrase. Some of you, if I just quoted the phrase, would, I might have already said it. You, you know exactly what I'm talking about because the phrase is so powerful, I believe. At least it's always stuck out to me when I'm reading Ephesians one. And So Ephesians one, it, it talks about this concept of, of knowing and our heart understanding and wisdom and knowledge, but being enlightened. All right, so Ephesians 1, verse 16. Well, before that, it says, I know of your faith, right? I know of your faith, it says. And then verse 16 says, I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in all my prayers, that the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of, now notice the word, wisdom, and of revelation, this idea of revealing 
In what? The knowledge of him. So there's a lot of wisdom, heady words here. And then it goes right from the eyes and it connects something else. Look at verse 18. Having the eyes of our hearts enlightened that you may know. Know what? Well, know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of the glorious inheritance to all the saints and and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? Believe, those who have connected what the eyes see and what the hearts believe and feel the connection of their resulting in this faith walking in that. Faith in what? This immeasurable power, it says, according to the working of his great might. Love this, look at verse 20 that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And that's what we just celebrated, resurrection. It's kind of a big deal, right? Why? Well, because this is what our hope is placed in. Having you coming in today, yes, you can see and understand and know intellectually and yet be completely just as lost as the next person. And yet having this intellectual understanding that then connects to the heart, the sense, the seat of the soul that transitions to an understanding and a belief that God then instills with you this gift of faith to walk in faith and believe and trust. Right? This is that process that I'm trying to describe. It's a very spiritual and yes, even intimate personal thing that can be hard to even describe. But I love the way Paul puts it. At least for me, it's been helpful. This, this eyes of my heart, if your heart had eyes, what would it see? Right? The eyes of your heart. And that's what I think is gonna be connected here from Luke 24, where we're gonna see two men having the eyes of their hearts enlightened by the person of Jesus Christ, and their lives are never the same after that. And each one of us kind of maybe has our own personal experience with that. This road to Emmaus, this Jesus coming. Yes, this passage is, is, I wouldn't say necessarily, if you turn with me to Luke chapter 24, I'm about to read it, but in Luke 24, this passage I wouldn't say is like an allegory, not like each person represents an exact thing, but I think, uh, and, and in fact, I wouldn't even recommend that you often insert yourself into every passage of scripture. I would say that's actually a most commonly a dangerous way to read scripture that we're the center of every story because uh, I'm not, it's Jesus, it's about him, right? And yet the way this passage is written coming directly off of the resurrection, now we're gonna be reading this lengthy passage on the road to Emmaus. We're gonna be reading this passage that I think we cannot help but see ourselves within this story because there is a certain aspect of Jesus is risen, or at least he says so, and, and so now what does that mean for us? Well, he's gonna appear bodily to people. What does that mean for you and me today? And are you gonna see him just like other people are longing to see him? Are you gonna see him today in the scriptures with your eyes, but are you gonna allow to have the eyes of your heart enlightened to where you then respond in faith to that living savior just like these people did. It, it means just as much for you as it does for them, all right? So now with all that, okay? Some of you are like, get on with it, dude. Revel- <laughs> Luke chapter 24, all right? Let's look at it. And like I said, before we get into this whole passage, this is one of the greatest stories, I think, even of all the Gospel of Luke. Many commentators say this is one of the greatest stories, like written, literary, 
um, outside of maybe the prodigal son or the good Samaritan. This is a, a, an amazing passage and we're gonna look at it. So verse 13, on the road to Emmaus, this is literally Sunday afternoon. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Now literally, this is the first time we actually know Jesus is risen from the dead. Kind of interesting. Before this, he's been building the suspense. You actually don't know, if this, if this is the first time you're reading this, you don't know if Jesus is risen from the dead. All you know is that Peter went, and the women went, and there was no Jesus in the tomb, but we still haven't met Jesus. <laughs> like everyone says he's risen, but we're still in suspense right up until this point when it says that Jesus himself, right, you get that? Drew near and went with them, it's pretty cool. And then it says verse 16, but then their eyes, notice we've been talking a lot about that, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Verse 17 says, and he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? Basically, what are you talking about? And they stood looking sad, or down, you know, and, and, and then one of them said, named Cleopas, turned uh, and answered him, and are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus, playing dumb, says, what things? <laughs> and they said to him, um, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be contemned, condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women, uh, some women from the company, from our company, amazed us. They, they were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who, who said that he was alive. And, and some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but, but him they did not see. And that's where their account of the things they've just seen happened. Kind of is like so close, it's almost there. And then verse 25 says, and he said to them, this is Jesus, oh foolish ones and slow of, what does he say, of eyes? Of heart, slow of heart. To believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer all these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, the Old Testament, Testament, the Torah and everything, he interpreted to them all the scriptures and the things concerning himself. So then they kept walking and they drew near to the village in which they were going and he acted as if he was gonna go farther but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward the evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. He broke the bread right in front of them. And it's at that moment, verse 31, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. But it doesn't end there because he vanished from their sight, so no longer do they see, but now they recognize something real within. Verse 32, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while we talked, while he talked to us on the road? while he opened to us the scriptures. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem 
So they just walked seven miles one way, and then they're like, shoot, this is amazing. They get up and they run back the other way they came. They run back to Jerusalem, <laughs> and they said, oh, the Lord has risen indeed. You know, that's the phrase we say all the time. And, as a unique fact, he says he has appeared to Simon. And when they told, uh, then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So this concept that I'm kind of drawing out from us so, so that we, we see, yes, the details of the story, but we, we see how this applies to us today, this conversation of the human soul. If your heart had a conversation with of itself, if the drama of the, of the road to Emmaus was lived out within your own life, as I think it is, then I think it would look something like this, right? And this is a marvelous narrative. Like I mentioned already, there's this suspense leading up. Again, we've seen Jesus risen from the dead, supposedly, and yet we haven't heard from him yet. In the account of Luke, if this is all you knew about the gospel, you would be anticipating this, but you haven't seen him yet. Peter rose and ran to the tomb, but he didn't meet Jesus yet, at least we haven't been introduced to that. And then finally, we see in Luke's account, this Jesus himself drew near. Now he drew near to who? Well, this, the characters here are like this person named Cleopas, uh, we don't exactly know who he is, and there is another unnamed person. Uh, some might say it's two men. Others would say this is, sounds a lot like uh, the word Clopas, but might not be connected, might be, but Clopas, the, there's a Mary, the wife of Clopas, mentioned, I think, in John. She's actually at the, um, she's present there with Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, the three Marys, and they're there uh, at the cross. There were some of the women who were there witnessing the crucifixion. And so some would say this is actually Clopas and his wife, Mary, walking to Emmaus. But we don't know exactly. The whole point I see is that there's this man named Cleopas and an unnamed other person. And I find it very fascinating the other person is unnamed because what I tend to do when someone is unnamed in that is I insert myself there, whether that's right or wrong. But I, but I sometimes when I'm reading it, and this is just personally for me, I, send, I almost see myself standing next to Cleopas, right, talking to Jesus asking these same questions and allowing my heart to be open to the scriptures as Jesus teaches them to me. And so that's what I find myself doing. I don't know, that's what I'm reading and maybe that's helpful for you as you kind of walk along this road here right alongside Cleopas. And so we, we recognize Jesus himself drew near. He is alive, but they don't recognize him. And is this a supernatural thing or not? I tend to think it is. Their, their eyes were kept from recognizing them possibly a supernatural withholding of their uh, being able to see, or, or maybe they just didn't recognize him as fully as um, this happened in other, Mary Magdalene and even the disciples had trouble fully recognizing Jesus in his new body in the way that they did, and then finally they understood this is Jesus, right? And so that's a possibility as well, but, but the question he asks to start, he asks this first question, what are you talking about? What, what conversation are you guys talking about on the road? He just kind of walks up alongside them and says, hey, can I walk with you? And hey, what are you guys talking about? What's going on? And they're like looking at him and like, uh, what do you mean, what are we talking about? And I notice how, how Luke gives you their, their, their position, their physical and their disposition. He tells you what? They stood still, so they're walking. They stood still, they look at him. And Jesus here, and Luke points out, they looked sad, right? Is, are they supposed to be sad? <laughs> like, like we know, Jesus is risen from the dead, you're talking to him, 
This isn't supposed to create sorrow, but their, their understanding and faith in Jesus was incomplete. So for them, this is a picture, I think, of some ways, of resurrectionless Christianity. <laughs> of a faith that is in this uh, uh, mental ascent but without any heart conversion in belief and faith. It isn't a, is it in, it's, a it's a faith in, in a moral teacher, in a nice guy, in someone who helps, gives us moral principles to live a better life. That is a resurrection-less Christianity where the resurrection really isn't all that important. It's kind of a side thing, you know, just live a good life and be a good person. So that is ultimately if we, take that at face value, if Jesus really isn't risen from the dead, then their response is, yeah, hopelessness and sadness. And man, I really had wished this was gonna turn out better than we thought, but it certainly didn't. We get a, we get a quick snapshot of even of this where John enlightens us into this just a little bit deeper where Jesus visits in John chapter 20, Mary Magdalene, right? He visits Mary Magdalene and, and she is weeping because she views this as a resurrectionless event. The gardener, or Jesus, right, and even the angels come up to her, and they say, well, what, what are you crying about? What are you weeping about? She's asked twice, well, what is she weeping about? Like, hello, the tomb's empty. Where have you taken my Lord? I do not know where they have laid him. Sir, if you know where they have laid my Lord, please let me know, and she's weeping. And Jesus says, Mary, right? And she recognizes, and boom, the light bulb turns on, and she sees Jesus for who he is. In like manner, this passage, I think, reflects almost that same process and narrative as we see this exact event happen here as well. Cleopas answers the questions, basically, you know, as they are sad, he answers the questions that one of them named Cleopas answered and said, are you crazy? Like, are, have you been living under a rock? Where have you been, dude, right? It's almost like, I almost imagine like last year in the height of the pandemic, if someone had woken up from a coma and just walked around in the streets and like, what is going on, you know what I mean? Like if you hadn't been filled in on to all the craziness going on, like, you would have been questioning the way you understood things to be before to the way, like, where is all the toilet paper, right? You would have just been like, what is going on? What, can, and then they go up to somebody, hello, like, can you explain? And the person's response would have been, have you been living under a rock? Do you not know? Like, hello? And that's exactly how it would have been in Jerusalem. The frenzy of activity and what was going on had spread around to every house and home. So this literally might be the only dude in Jerusalem who didn't know about what had happened, right? So Jesus is, I just love the way he kind of talks with them and lets them to elaborate and tell him what they believe. And so he's, what things? What things? I don't know. What do you tell? Why don't you tell me? Fill me in, you know? And they do their best. And frankly, they do a pretty good job. These guys uh, do, do a pretty good job of explaining uh, what they believe, uh, what they've seen, what they've witnessed with their eyes. They have the puzzle done. The edge pieces are all in place, and they're filling in the story, but they're missing kind of the one key piece in the middle to finish it all off, right? Other than that, it's just an incomplete puzzle, and it bugs you to death if you don't have that final piece, right, you know? That's kind of what it's like. It's like the puzzle is being formulated, but man, we really thought Jesus was that final piece to close that puzzle, but it just seems like it wasn't that way. They're kind of puzzled. They're so close 
And, and Luke is just defining for us the importance of the resurrection, that this is really the big deal. This is the big dance. This is the big game. This is, this is important. Yes, you can, be, you can be Gonzaga and win every game, but losing the championship and whoops, it doesn't really matter, does it? You lost the final. I know, I can say it because as a Patriots fan, we went undefeated and then lost to the Giants in the Super Bowl, right? And now it doesn't matter. You lost what really mattered, the big game. The, Jesus lived a perfect life. He died on the cross, but whoops. Man, he just missed that final ending. He was killed and he's dead. And I guess so are we until someone comes and finally figures out the puzzle. And so in their heart, you can see in, in, in Luke 24, them talking concerning Jesus. They, they literally say, verse 21, but we had hoped, past tense, we, we had hoped that Jesus was gonna be the one to free us, the word is redeem, to free, to set us free from sin, to get, bring back the land, probably in their mind, to conquer the Romans and this such. But, but Jesus is probably listening to this and he can only take so much of kind of this aspect of not, fully believing. And in like manner, we are the same way. Ephesians 2, we read Ephesians 1, but Ephesians 2, right? We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We, we are in that hopeless state apart from Jesus, but because of Jesus and the grace, we have been saved through faith. In Ephesians 2, it talks about how he has made us alive. We were dead, and Jesus makes us alive makes all the difference because he has conquered the grave, he dispenses life. So, so Jesus says to them, what does he say? He, we had hoped these things, we wished these things, yes, the tomb is empty and it's confusing, but I don't understand what I'm looking at and seeing. And then he says, oh foolish one, slow of heart. He points to their heart. Their heart is not wanting to believe. The seat of their faith, the soul, if you would, of the belief, the central personhood, who you are, I said to my class earlier, we were talking about this, you know, the song, listen to your heart, right? Even, even the way the world would define how you live and operate and what you do or don't do is based on your heart. What do you feel like doing? What do you want to do? What does your heart say you should do, right? Don't we speak like this? The heart, the seat of these, the eyes in which we see the world and then decide what to do. The mind and the eyes inform our heart and determine, yes, our feelings, but our intellectual understanding of the world and how to operate what we believe and what we don't believe involve both the eyes and the heart. They are inextricably linked. Jesus is saying to you and to me that we are so often slow of heart. We are slow of heart. Our faith is slow to believe in so many ways. And so often I pray that increase our faith, the disciples said. Increase it, Lord. Help me to believe. Help me to see and to believe this concept together there, this aspect. And notice, what does he say? He doesn't just slap him around a bit and wake up. Don't you see? He shows them. So the same thing for you. If your heart is slow to believe, that's fine, because let Jesus show you. He's gonna open up the scriptures, and he's gonna show you about himself. Look at it. And I often wonder, what does he say here, right? You know, this is amazing as he informs their faith and gives them this gift of faith here. He says, oh foolish one, slow of heart, believe all that the prophets have spoken. Have you not believed that? Was it not necessary? This is the question, kind of three here. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things? And beginning with Moses, way back in the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, the beginning of the Bible, he then interprets all of the scriptures to the things concerning himself. Romans 10, 17. 
Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of God. Think about, <laughs> I don't have time for this, but think about the, the word of God. John 1, the word became flesh. The logos, the divine reason, the understanding and the wholeness of all that there is. The creator became flesh. Here we have the resurrected flesh, the resurrected savior, now teaching the word of God, now teaching them the word of God. It's this, it's kind of a mind-blowing thing. It's this, this situation that I, I'm like, I need more time on this passage to think this through because it is amazing. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and John says in 1.14, we have seen eyes. You have seen, we have seen. John is saying we have seen him full of grace and truth. We too can see this same Jesus as well. And now what would he have taught them? I often think about this. He began at the beginning and he tells them about himself. The entire Bible from cover to cover, you can find Jesus in it. He is this thread that runs from the beginning to the end. He is the thing, if you would, the key that unlocks the box of your understanding to make this to be something that actually changes your life. Without Jesus and the resurrection, this does become something of, a, of an intellectual exercise. But with Jesus, it becomes a life-changing, altering, altering reality. But I love what he also says right before this as he teaches them. He says, was it not necessary that these things should happen? Like, whoa, Jesus died on a cross and all this, and he wrote, he's supposed to rise, but was that not necessary? Like, didn't we tell you this was gonna happen? Haven't you searched the scriptures and see that this suffering servant in Isaiah 53 was going to come and die this manner? Like, didn't Christ have to die in order to bring life? You can almost think of that logic. Like, didn't Israel have to sacrifice a lamb and shed blood in order to atone for the sins of the people? Like, didn't you have to put a scapegoat and put the sins on a scapegoat outside the camp in order to cleanse the people? Like, didn't you have to shed the blood of a lamb and place it over the blood, uh, the blood on the doorpost in order for the angel to pass over? Like, like, didn't Israel have to go through the wilderness in order to be liberated and to enter the, past, uh, the, the promised land? Didn't Israel have to go through the Egypt, really, to Exodus to be redeemed? Didn't Jonah go into the belly of the whale in order to bring salvation to these undeserving Assyrians? Didn't Joseph have to be imprisoned in Egypt in order to preserve the people of God through a famine? Didn't, didn't Esther have to go through a terribly difficult place in an exiled life, in an exiled land, in order to bring salvation and stand the gap for her people? Didn't Ruth have to go through this almost dying commitment of loyalty of giving herself to her mother-in-law in poverty and live in hunger in order to be redeemed by Boaz? Didn't David have to run for years while being hunted by Saul in order to eventually be crowned king? Didn't Gideon have his entire army whittled down to almost nothingness in order for God to work through that weakness and achieve a great victory? Didn't the people have to be bitten by vipers in order for Moses to place and lift up a bronze serpent for them to see and to be healed as the Son of Man would also be lifted up? Didn't Hannah go through years of barrenness in order to give birth to a miracle son of Samuel? Didn't Sarah do the same? 
Didn't she go through the reproach of barrenness to give birth to Isaac? Abraham, didn't he wander as an exile, as a sojourner, as it says, with no land, no place to stay, in order for God to give him the promised land? And didn't he have to wait for many years for the promise to unfold? Joseph, again, didn't he be mocked and, and his cloak stolen and left for dead, thrown into a pit and sold for silver in order to bring salvation to his loved ones who also tried to kill him? And didn't Jesus have to suffer the things by the hands of sinful men and be crucified in order to rise from the dead? <laughs> Was this not a necessary sacrifice? Was this not part of the plan all along? And I think when we look at the scripture often that way of informing our own doubts, we recognize that God's been in control the whole time. We just need to allow ourselves to have our eyes see and our hearts believe and to understand the scripture that the person of Jesus has been preparing for this. When the time was right, the Bible says, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, right, to save the world. And so we, we see Jesus interpret the scriptures, the Old Testament uh, to the new, that, that he was the anointed one, the Christos, the, the Christ, which means anointed, this, this one that he was the anointed king, he was the anointed one, the promised one, the Messiah who was gonna come and save the world. As he also connected the scriptures to himself. Did Jesus not get up in the temple and do what? Hey everybody, I'm Jesus. He got up in the temple and he did what? He read from the Old Testament scriptures, and he pointed that he fulfills those. He read Isaiah 61.1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed, meaning Jesus is Christ, anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. This is Jesus' mission. And he does it by teaching us from the Old Testament and informing us to the new. We read the Bible from creation to fall to redemption and we see God weaving this amazing battle plan to rescue back the ones he loves. For we have rebelled against him and sinned against his holy name and he now makes it possible for us to throw off and cast off of our, our dirty robes and to put on robes of righteousness and to walk in holiness in front of a holy God. That righteousness not because of anything we have done but because of everything he has done for us. This is the gospel message that we need to trust in, believe in and follow and walk in faith. And then how does Jesus kind of bring this all, this whole message as he's been teaching them. Later on they say their hearts were burning within him as he preached this message to them, right? And as their hearts were burning, he, he tops it all off. He tops off all that he's been teaching, not by just saying intellectually understand the scripture, physically participate in it now. How does he do that? Intellectually, they have begun to understand the scriptures as he has unfolded all of those things concerning himself, and then he stays for a meal, and he breaks bread with them. And the Bible says that in the breaking of the bread, they begin to see. Their eyes are opened, and they see Jesus for who he really is. They began to recognize and see the truth and the fullness of God, that it is not just simply an intellectual exercise, but it is physical participation within this faith that then also means something for me. For what do you do with that bread that is broken? The bread of life, 
that the feeding on the 5,000 is dispensed and passed and broken and we all join and partake together in communion. Every month we partake and break of the bread and pass it around for the bread. This is my body, right? This is the bread, my body which is given for you. Jesus, literally the bread of life, sitting in front of these men breaking bread and it is in that act that I believe they sense within them and the Spirit of God opens up their hearts. The eyes of their hearts are enlightened to see Jesus, that he is the bread of life broken for the world and not kept to himself but now shared with all who would partake of him. This is the gospel message that invites you to come. Invites you to come and yes, participate in this Lord's Supper, this, this act of taking of the bread and drinking of the blood, this sense, right? The breaking of the bread, participation with Jesus in the crucifixion, but as Romans 6 so pointedly says that we participate in a, in a crucifixion like his, we also will in like manner participate in a resurrection like his. And so it is in their recognition that they go from, if you would, eyesight to heartburn, okay? Maybe you'll remember that. Eyesight to heartburn, because what do they say? They see, they have seen before that the eyes of their hearts are now enlightened, and their hearts now, as it says, did our hearts not burn within us while we talked with him along the road? Our hearts began to burn. And I think for you and for me, we all come into that place where, where ultimately, as John 3, 3 says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There, there is, for so many, that I, there is a sense of blindness, of, of I cannot see what it is that you see. But thank God that he opens the eyes of the blind. <laughs> he sets the captives free. And he does it through himself breaking that bread and passing it you today, and I invite you in that way, in that manner, to partake of that bread, that living bread, that also in like manner, in another metaphor, is like living water, that when you take of that water, you'll never thirst again. And so we are born again into this experience, our bodies are buried with him, and we are raised to walk in newness of life. And we walk in that truth, and we believe, we believe with our hearts, and I hope today, I hope today that no, you're not gonna remember everything we said or talked about today, but I hope today you can go from here saying your hearts burn within you when you hear the reading of God's word, when you recognize that you too have eaten of that bread and you want others to know about that as well because your response today is to leave here and not just say it's a nice story that made me feel good, but rather to do exactly what these people did. They recognized Jesus with their eyes. Their hearts were enlightened to understand him for he is. They believed, and what did they do? They got up in the middle of the night, because it was late afternoon at this point, probably dark, and they ran back to Jerusalem to tell everybody that they knew. We have seen him. He has risen indeed, and he has also appeared to Cephas, or Peter. And in Jesus, they had probably told them about how he had appeared personally to Peter, the one who's denied him, and yet appears personally and says, I love you. Feed my sheep, right? So this is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful picture that I think you too can find yourself on this road today and find yourself on this road to Emmaus and you can walk in faith as you allow Jesus to inform your understanding and to trust him that as he breaks the bread in front of you, he is the bread of life and he is the light of the world.